Good afternoon. It's the second Tuesday of the month, probably the same time where you are if you're listening live on WERU-FM Blue Hill at 89.9 on the FM dial. If you're listening to the archive version of Boat Talk at WERU.org, it might be any time in the future from here. I'm Alan Sprague. Mike Joyce, the other rusty anchor, will join us shortly. Speaking of the future, Boat Talk will return to our call-in show format at some time in the future when Mike and I and our guests can get together in the studio all at the same time to take live phone calls. But for now, this is pre-recorded, so we can't take phone calls. This month, we have a shipload of Zoom meetings to work with, plus... The last part of our interview with Leroy Weed from last month. So, this being Women's History Month and going with our Ladies First principle, we are putting Leroy in an interesting interview with Zach Cliver of Blue Planet Strategies off until next month. Before we talk with the ladies, we first want to announce the news that Noah is no longer going to make printed navigation charts. NOAA is going exclusively to electronic navigation charts soon. Well, by 2024, if you are a Luddite sailor and don't have a cell phone or a chart plotter or such electronic device, you're going to be navigating with wallpaper pretty soon. First chart to go is the one for Lake Tahoe. I don't think you can sail there from here, but it's NOAA chart number 18665. Gone. Now to become a collector's item. Also, if you enjoyed the Zoom meeting talk last month that Art Payne gave, he's going to be giving another talk this evening about the Out Island Regatta in the Bahamas. But you have to register by 4.30, so call 244-3798. Mike and I have mentioned boat builder Jarvis Newman several times on Boat Talk, and John Johansson, the editor of Maine Coastal News, said, you really should talk with Kathy, Jarvis's daughter, and a boat broker. So we did, and John joins us. How's the uh, boat brokerage business in a strange time? I don't think I've ever been busier. I have sold most so of my inventory. I, it's outrageous. <laughs> it's great. I mean, well, and everybody's in the same boat. I've heard that. I get brokers calling me up and down the East Coast. Do you have any down East glass boats, diesel engines, low hours, you know? And I don't. <laughs> I've got wooden ones. <laughs> uh, I don't have any Newmans, uh, Stan, uh, Stanleys, Williams, whatever. I, I, Duffy's. I have one Duffy lobster boat. That's all I have. And, yeah. The, and yeah. How do we explain the uptick in and desire for boats? Everybody wants to get on the water and get uh, away from land. Uh, pandemic. Yep. 
And I'm selling a lot of, um, uh, in my words, entry-level boats, sailboats and powerboats. Uh, I have sold, uh, I did sell an M, uh, an MJM this week, which is a high-end boat for me. But uh, I've sold a lot of smaller sailboats. I mean, a ton of, I mean, more than close to a dozen, I would say, over the last year. And I never sell sailboats. And don't make a comment, John. <laughs> <laughs> But what what are you selling though? Are you selling like uh, uh, the Hershoff twelve and a halfs? Yep, yep. I can't keep those. Do you do you find that that's going to be a fleet that increases this year? Yes, but they. Uh, oh, I definitely think it's an. But it's. I think it's an entry level sailboat. I think families are getting to know how to sail, and then they upgrade. I've right, and then they get a bigger boat. So. But yes, I hope that our our little racing fleet would be great, and at least in Southwest Harbor, to uh, increase because they've died out. Yeah, how many are racing now compared to say ten years ago? So I would say we had between a dozen and a dozen and a half at least ten years ago, and the no, they've quit the bullseyes. The twelve and a halfs or bullseyes have quit the fleet. Because right. we have so many looters in there now in Southwest Harbor, and we're the only fleet in the area <laughs> that has looters, and they're so they're so serious. And if you guys sail them, don't be offended, but <laughs> they're so serious and they're technical. And bullseyes aren't technical. <laughs> we just want to beat the summer people. I mean, that was Dad and and me and my grandfather. That was what we wanted to do. It's just kind of interesting that, you know, that the the bullseyes, you know, have died out, you know, per se. You know, I would have thought more people would have done that than a, than a looters. Well, the looters, it changed. Okay, I'm just going to tell you the truth. It changed the whole situation of the bullseye fleet. Southwest Harbor had the bullseyes. Northeast Harbor has the internationals. Um, Mercury's are in there somewhere, maybe Seal Harbor. Um, and a little uh, little cranberry maybe. But Southwest had bullseyes and you had three generations of people sailing. You had little kids, you had parents and you had grandparents because they're stable boats. They don't knock you off. I mean, they're small, they're easy to handle. Um, that's what my father downsized to in the retirement years and his father did um, from friendships to bullseyes. They're just fat, great boats to sail. Um, and there's, you know, you don't flip over, but they, they, you don't get hurt on them. Um, and for Southwest Harbor, the teas, the teas on Friday afternoons were, um, they were truly teas and tea and cookies and, um, hors d'oeuvres, but it kept it quick, short, you got your awards and, uh, and then you left and it's changed. You've got you've got looters, people who are real racers, as far as I'm concerned. You don't, <laughs> you don't go around a mark. You have two different balloon um, marks that you have to go around to make it wider, a wider turn so you don't get hurt. Well, that's because the looters are so fast <laughs> and, and, uh, and quick. And so it's a wider turn as a rule. It confused my dad so that he sold his bullseye. The last year he sailed, he sold it in the middle of the season. He didn't understand the new rules. Mm -hmm. And I that was a while ago. And then 
I, I, I don't know. I, I, I've talked about it with the sailing school. It's like, what's going on? Why, why no bull size? And I think it's just a little bit more technical and competitive than it used to be. It was competitive, but friendlier. <laughs> friendlier. Seriously. I mean, so how many are in the IOD fleet now? Oh gosh, there's a lot out there. I just watched the. So watched it's still it's still stayed strong. Oh, definitely. And yeah. then how about the looters? The looters up there now in numbers? Oh, I would say there's over certainly over a dozen. Yeah, yeah. but I I don't know how many. But right. Yeah. yeah. But still strong. Strong, and they sell fairly quickly. When but now you mentioned friendship sloops. How's yeah. that doing? <laughs> I stole. Uh, you know what? You can laugh that way. Uh, no, no, I, I stole, I'm teasing you. Uh, I sold four fiberglass friendship sloops of my father's, the little ones, this this year. I I never sell four in a year. Mm-hmm. It takes several years mm-hmm. to sell four. So, and I've sold all my wooden ones that needed a lot of work. Right. I, I've sold those too. So what have you got left in the brokerage? You said you still had some wooden ones? I'm still selling uh, Chummy Riches 34 that he built for himself. He and his brother, Walter. Oh yeah, Walter built. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, but it is under agreement pending oh. a sea trial. Yeah. Kathy, please. That's not the one with the camper on it, is it? No, <laughs> that's what my husband said too. No, it that is was not. quite. That was the when Winnebago down the Bass Harbor for a while. The Winnebago is exactly yeah, the Botabago, right. I call it. <laughs> no. He sold that a couple of years ago, didn't he? He did, and it's still sold. And and because I asked him, because uh, he's now looking for another boat, and uh, I said, "You're going to buy that back?" And he goes, "No, I don't think so." But I think he might have <laughs> thought about it. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't put a hard look at it, but I those boys know boats. I bet they, you know, I bet that thing shed water and it the, didn't look like a boat, but it was. Well, you know? it had a ready-made kitchen and a head, so and bunks. Yep. So it was all set. It was <laughs> yeah, comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> and a little uh, brightly painted as well. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So funny, <laughs> Kathy. Can we go back to the basics here for a while? Um, sure. Oh yeah. Kathy is uh, Newman Marine Brokerage now. You mentioned your dad a few times, and dad is a fairly famous uh, nautical person down uh, well about everywhere, let alone MDI. Um, speak of Jarvis and his career. Well, um, I don't think my father ever planned on being a boat builder, but. It's the only way he got back to Southwest Harbor. He and my mother both grew up in Southwest Harbor, but they both left. They went they went off to school and then they got jobs. Uh, and then they met and married and came back. And then they after my sister and I were born, they wanted to come back to Southwest Harbor. So my father was a classmate of Bob Hinckley's. And Bob just said one year, in ninth, one month, I don't know when, in 1964, he, uh, he told my father he had openings in the glass shop if he wanted a job. And my father did. <laughs> and that's when he moved back and he learned how to glass. Uh, he did. And that was, uh, let's put it this way. I was uh, working at the Hinkley Company in the early 80s and going to the glass shop, Jimmy St. Clair times. Oh, that was a rough place. Um, 
you could grind glass and smoke a cigarette at the same time, sort of, you know, those days. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But Jarvis learned fiberglass, which was incredible because one of the first things he did, I believe, was uh, made a mold of a little local rowboat, now known as the Newman 12. Absolute classic. He did. He, he did. He started with one rowboat and then he switched to the Sperling rowboat style yeah. and um, adapted it for glass. But Hinkley's didn't have a rowboat. And dad just saw, thought, I'm going to try it because we're building all these nice yacht sailboats and uh, yachty sailboats. And uh, there's nothing to row out to them for, with. So that's the only, that's why he started it. Yes, I probably right? finished off a dozen of them. And if you go to a Newman Brokerage website about us, there's a wonderful picture, I believe, of a Newman 12 with your dad sitting in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. We and like again, that. classic little boat. I've, again, I've worked on a lot of them pretty far. Oh, above. good for you. Buddy's got one, yeah. Yeah, I have one that I didn't build new. I just find them, and, and my husband fixed it up and uh, mostly. And then uh, my daughter got married last year. Uh, two summers ago and that's what she wanted as a wedding gift. So we scrounged around and found another beat up one and he fixed it up and uh, we gave it to her. So we have two in the family. <laughs> Do you have but Jarvis being a fiberglass guy, he knew how to make molds and he used again, existing boats that uh Sperling uh, Newman 12 rowboat there. Yes. And a what friendship called dictator made a mold of that. Didn't he? He did that, and yes, and then he he made a mold off from a smaller friendship in in 1968 of um, a, a Bald Mountain Boatworks friendship sloop called Old Baldy. Yeah, and again we go up to uh, what was the biggest Newman 46 maybe anything bigger than that 46 that was yeah yeah and a good good stout uh, down east sea boat you know uh, oh. yeah I'd like to have one someday. <laughs> I don't know when. <laughs> now, would you trade your wooden boat in for that? Not yet. <laughs> nope. No, we're all didn't. too. We're too uh, attached to the, the the new old wooden boat. What makes a good broker? Well, <laughs> uh, I believe what makes a good broker part of is obviously some knowledge of boats, but a. I'll just say a love of boats, a a uh, enthusiastic enjoyment of of being on the water in a boat. Uh, I'm not technical like my father was. He he knew how to talk engines and uh, gears, and I can't talk that language. But I can. I don't know. I just I can do some of that, but mostly I think I just like the build of a boat and how it sits in the water and how it moves in the water and the enjoyment of being uh, stepping off the land and being on the ocean. But you know what the customer is looking for. You know what well, I do. Oh, definitely. We've sailed. Yeah. Right. I, I do. On all of these boats. I do for the most part. Yeah. You know, cause you've done sailing and power. I have. And I know what I like and I can talk, about that with new people and seasoned boaters. Um, I don't, I don't know all the new systems. I will be honest with you, but, um, but I know the basics. Right. Um, uh, and you know, friendship sloops and lobster boat style boats. Uh, 
don't have a lot of gear on it on them it's they don't even have winches on the sloops you know <laughs> uh so i uh but the i just I don't know what makes it. I communicate, I think, pretty well. I went to secretarial school, so I, I try to uh, keep going, uh, keep a good conversation going, um, keep their interest. Uh, Make dreams come true. Well, there you go. Right. And and search for boats for them. You know, if I don't have one, I look around for them. I'm, I know a lot of brokers and, uh, and boatyards. Uh, boatyard managers and I snoop around see what I can find nice I like that you don't have to know all the technicalities to still be a good broker grandfather well which one my boat builder grandfather yes oh so that would be Raymond Bunker which you oh all geez <laughs> uh, again uh, more than a little bit famous <laughs> So he is my mother's father, and uh, we named our new old Bunker and Ellis lobster boat after my mother, because um, I don't think she ever had a boat named for her. So Nice. We did. Yeah. So what'd you name your boat? Because it was Mouse, right? It was built for uh, a Vinyl Haven fisherman, Wilfred Lloyd, and whose nickname was Mouse. And yeah. so we have lots of mice on the boat, uh, not live ones, <laughs> decorative ones. <laughs> And, um, but we named it Susan Margaret, uh, cause my mother was born Susan Margaret Bunker. So that's what we named her. And you bought it and it wasn't in what we would call the finest of conditions. And you've had several people do a, a little bit of work on her. Oh, just a little, <laughs> like, <laughs> like all Stanley new frames. <laughs> yeah. Richard Stanley being one. Yeah. Richard did most of the work. Yeah. yeah. My husband did a lot of work too. Right. Um, and he likes working with Richard. He does a lot. Oh, he thinks Richard's a genius. Uh, Richard is a genius, more or less. I've seen him, yeah. I've seen him work. Have you? Oh, incredible. Yeah. Uh, I did not grow up in a wooden boat shop. I grew up in a glass shop. So I don't, I never really appreciated what goes into a wooden boat until I witnessed this one being rebuilt. And uh, did you ever work with your father? You know, yes. My sister and I were allowed to clean the shop, sweep and sweep off the tools, neaten things up. We were not allowed to be in the shop when things were being glassed or sprayed, gel coated, whatever. The fumes were pretty high back then. And in the 70s and early 80s, I don't think anyone wore a respirator. Nope. Uh, <laughs> ever. Uh so my father didn't like us in the shop, but, you know, we did everything else other right. than that. We hung around with dad, mowed the lawn, stacked. Do you, do you remember your first time on the water? You know, I do have early memories of dad did a lot of work on his early boats. And they'd be, if he'd launched them already, he would, we could go out with him. And he would put us in the rowboat, and we did not have a Newman tender at that time. We had an old plywood, smaller punt, flat bottom punt. And he would tie us off the stern. And one of my earliest memories with dad is we just row around the boat with a long painter or two. Um, but one day I got bored and I just started reading a book in the rowboat. And I didn't realize my father had uh, 
let the painter go. <laughs> well, I do remember that and, and scrambling and trying to get back to the boat. Uh, but that is one of my earlier memories. Our first family boat was a an old 1932 um, Clemens. Um, Chester? Chester Clemens boat. He built the launch for uh, the John Thorpe family out on Greenings Island. The name of his home was Ravenscroft, and um, the name of the boat was Raven. And I don't know if any of you guys have seen her around. She's been around the island. She's now down in Brooklyn. I don't know who owns her. Um, but one of my earlier memories was um, it had big engine box, and I had a, cl- a friend of mine and I were sitting on the transom. We'd gone out to Cranberry with Dad and another man, probably to see a boat, but dad wasn't brokering then, but he had a reason to go out there. And my friend and I were hanging off the the transom, zooming back to Southwest Harbor. Our feet were hanging off the stern and it just got cold. So we just scooted off and um, down into the boat in behind the engine box to get warm. But my father was up in the bow talking with this guy and all of a sudden the boat stopped suddenly. And my friend and I looked at each other and we stuck our heads up and said, what's going on? And my father had thought we had gone off. So he was looking beyond us out into the wake, scared the living daylights. I've never seen him so scared. (laughs) (laughs) Well, rightly so. (laughs) Yeah, That was a young age, not an early, early age, but that was a young junior high age. Well, you know who taught your grandfather how to build a boat too, don't you? I certainly do. <laughs> and it was Chester. Yes. Yeah. He worked at, he owned Southwest Boat, what we know as Southwest Boat. And uh, yeah, my grandfather worked there. He was killed awful young, wasn't he? Chester. He was. I think. Was he that young? Yeah, wow. he, well, no, it was in 37. So I don't oh, know how old there. he was at the time. Wow. Huh. Didn't he, he got hit by a car, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I know that that was one of the big things that Ralph Stanley loves to do research on is Chester Clement. Yeah. Mm. He had a nice style. Nice eye. I mean, you look at, because Jericho's being rebuilt over at, or just having a stem replaced over (laughs) at uh, Rich's place. And it's incredible to see how well that boat was built and how much of it's still original. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, you go through that, and I think most of it's original. And that's pretty good for a 1955-built boat. It is pretty good. It is pretty good. (laughs) But that boat's been babied. It has been for quite a while, yes. Mm. Yes. And you know that the grandson, the great-grandson of the original owner owns her. Right. Oh, it's still in the the same family. family. Yeah. Because it was a Gates boat, Thomas Gates. Right, right, right. Yeah, I did go over when uh, Wayne was uh, starting on that, but I haven't seen it recently. Oh, you got to go see it. Chummy told him he was a good helper. (laughs) Good. Nice of him. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's about as good as Chummy will will get. (laughs) (laughs) And again, the Bowden question is known as Bunker and Ellis uh, after your grandfather and his partner. And... Those are big, good words around the uh, waterfront down to MDI as well as, you know, anywhere. Absolute classics. And uh, 
lucky to be owned, as you say, by people who appreciate and can afford to maintain them correctly. Um, let alone we got people like Richard Stanley, uh, Ralph's boy, who can fix them right too. So that's exactly right. Thank yeah. goodness, because there aren't as many wooden boat boat builders as they used to be. You know, when you oh, think God. about all the harbors, yeah. that is what's fun about it about selling boats. Do you have to deal with people? Well, you have to deal with people looking for something to enjoy. You know, right. uh, I, I've got to make that yeah distinction. It can be, it's fun because they're enthusiastic. They want something. And um, I like it too. So it makes it easy. Isn't that right? You know what I mean? Some boat builders aren't so much salesmen, are they? Oh, gee whiz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're so serious about it. <laughs> well, I don't know about the serious part. They're serious about building the boat, but they don't really like some of the customers. Oh, I know. That's what I mean. They just want to get down to what their job is. Oh, no. I Yeah, there are some of those. <laughs> there was one that used to lock the door. As soon as you left the building, they'd lock the door. You didn't get back in until the boat was done. <laughs> oh, I did not know that. Oh, yeah, it's Beals Island. Adrian Beal did that. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of them that wish they, well, now, you know what they find in? If you go, even go to Beals, go to Jonesport and look on Wayne Beals' boat shop on his door, big yeah. sign, do not enter, call this number. <laughs> and it's not to keep COVID out, it's to keep you out. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then how do you of, get in there? But it's interesting because they found out how much more productive they are without having people come through the door. Yeah. And it's, it they found it. It's incredible how much time they waste in the spring and fall with people. You know, one of them told me yesterday that he is no longer it. You have to come by appointment from now on, even after the COVID's gone. Wow. Because it, the amount of time they lose is really, really, it adds up. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Oh, I believe it. Absolutely. Oh, dear. Well, thank you. Uh, this was this was fun. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you, Kathy. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. That's Kathy Newman of Newman Marine Brokerage in Southwest Harbor. Thanks, Kathy. Next, we talk with the author of a new book titled Pretty Rugged. True Stories from Women of the Sea. Holly Farrell has put together stories and pictures of several women in the fisheries industry in the Downeast area. She is joined by Holly Masterson, one of the women in the book. I asked Holly to read the last paragraph of the introduction to the book, which I think describes the subject very well. Yeah, the last paragraph in the introduction, it says, between the pages of the book, you'll see women who were or are attorneys, politicians, sole breadwinners, high corporate position holders, scientists, master's recipients, marathon runners, community leaders, pilots, that's Holly, and more. <laughs> what matters most is that 100% of them are determined won't stop till I win go-getters. They're buying bigger, faster, nicer boats, investing in new technology, remaining excited about the education surrounding the business, and improving the status quo. 
grandma and grandpa's fishing lifestyle paved the way, and they couldn't show more respect for that. But at the same time, these women are here to make an impact. They stand for family, intense work ethic, mental strength, tradition, and growth. These are their stories. That's a pretty good job description, Holly. Yep, that that sums it up (laughs) for sure. Yeah, it feels really amazing to be part of this whole project and to be, you know, I don't know if I'm sure, you know, Bob Sattler and I was bringing him some scallops the other night and it was a late night. It was like six, seven o'clock by the time I actually got off the boat and got them weighed up and was dropping them off to him on my way home. And he goes, come in, come in. And I'm, you know, kind of in a rush to get home, but he's Mr. Sattler. He was my teacher when I was five. So I went in and he runs out back and he gets the book and he's like, sign it, sign it. And he goes, we just loved reading about you girls and everything about it. So it was a real honor for me to have him approach, you know, to say that and to ask for me to write in the book. And that was a pretty special moment for me. So I, I really love the fact that I'm part of this legacy here that Ali's created. It's awesome. Totally awesome. That's cool. It'll probably yeah. happen again, too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's be fair. Allie hasn't created the legacy you have. She's reporting. Well, she has put it all say. together. She has put it all together. And I'll tell you yeah. what, I don't think it was an easy task. <laughs> so. Oh, I'm thinking gold mine. Yeah. I'm thinking yeah. gold mine. <laughs> approach, right? I don't know. I was, I was just subject. there bugging them on their boat the whole time, like, trying to stay out of the way, but you know, <laughs> annoying them while they were trying to work. That's all. That's, all That's right. another trick. <laughs> we just talked uh, recently about uh, the ins and outs of visiting boatyards and why they don't want you in. And uh, same thing with visiting fishermen while they're working. Come on. It's, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's all true. right. Small doses, small doses, but it's hard to bring a photographer or any a report, anybody on the boat for more than really like an hour is sort of pushing it. It's like, okay, we can't bring them back to the dock. You know, it's hard. It's hard. We've actually yeah. taken some observers that in the corner, you know, they feel all right. And then about eight hours into the day, we start talking about seasickness and they're over the rail and they're like, oh, dear, are we going dear, in? No. <laughs> <laughs> they don't like that. <laughs> yeah. Ollie, can I ask you a version of the, we call it the boat talk question and it works with musicians, fishermen, a bunch of different people. Change okay. the term. What happened to you when you was young, messed you up? You ended up to grow up to be a fish head. And I say that with res- with respect. You know what it was? I saw my stepfather counting thousands of dollars of cash on the kitchen <laughs> yeah. table. I'm not even kidding. When I was probably 14, he came in and had stacks of money laid out and was counting it. And it was sort of one of those things where I came into the kitchen, sort of looked, eyes got real big and just went, holy sh! what he makes that much money and I really don't think it was like as I've been in this business for a long time it probably was like three thousand dollars to me at 14 years old it was a hundred thousand dollars and whatever he was doing I was determined to come home with stacks of money like that so for me in the beginning I think it was Growing up on the harbor, I grew up on Southwest Harbor. So fishermen were, you know, I got woken up to clam diggers every morning. So that was just sort of normal. And uh, seeing the money, I think when I was about 14, sort of 
spurred me to think, what am I going to do with my life to make that, to make money like that, to come home and be able to have that and provide. How'd you get started? Uh, so I started fishing with my stepdad, uh, David Horner. And um, it was one of those things. He called me out of the blue and just said my, his stern man at the time had slipped on the ice and threw his back out. And he needed help hauling just through the traps. He just needed to finish hauling that week. It wasn't going to be a long-term thing. He just needed help, you know, getting through like 400 more traps. So we went the first day. I hated it. Didn't like it. Was just like, I'm not doing this. This is too hard. You know, it's cold. Just not prepared the way I should have been. Um, not dressed properly. Didn't have enough, enough food. Didn't have enough water. All those things. Um but I watched him and I got my paycheck that day. And at the, you know, after we had gotten in and just said, okay, I'm, I'm hooked. I'll come back tomorrow. And then it just, it just kept happening. I just kept, kept coming back. And then we picked up all the traps. It was not as hard as it was that first day after that. Um, him and my mom had a fish market in Manset. I don't know if anyone remembers that it was called Faye and Dave's seafood market um, where we sold all of his ground fish. He had two boats, um, operating so we had a ground he had two ground fishing boats and then we had a scallop boat and a lobster boat so we had and a shrimp boat we had everything sort of going on coming back to that market to sell it locally um so I never really thought I'd work on the boat I saw myself more marketing and selling the selling product I would deliver to restaurants when I was 15 I had my work license and I would drive around Bar Harbor I'd bring everybody whatever they had ordered that week from the fish market, Dave would, would fillet everything. My great aunt Connie, um, who's gone. Um, but she actually came to the fish market and helped fillet everything and taught him, you know, some tricks that she had learned when she was a kid, how to fillet fish and, you know, do all that. And this old guy, Bud Higgins, I don't know if anyone remembers Bud Higgins, but he also would come and help fillet and kind of on those big fish days when the boat would come in we'd have hundreds and thousands of pounds of fish that would need to be filleted so we sort of had a little crew there and um we would just sell locally and then I would go around and deliver to all the restaurants which sort of got me to where I am now I still do that I still bring them you know to blaze and you know all these restaurants all over the islands um some in Ellsworth actually and then locals is really, I mean, I'm still doing that. Like today at Destination Health, I brought five pounds to those guys. And, you know, and it's, I'm always getting phone calls and messages now on, um, you know, what they can get, what I've got available. I'm hooking them up with, you know, folks that maybe I don't have the product they want, but I know somebody that does. So I've become sort of this really good network person here in Southwest Harbor and just locally in Hancock County, really, because now I'm branched out and I actually go to Brewer sometimes and sell the scallops. Um, I've got people contacting me from, you know, Northern Maine. I've had somebody meet me from Fort Kent last uh, spring, this past spring. So I met them in Brewer and they drove hours to get fresh scallops and they got those, they got home. They called me back and said, when can we get some more? So it's a cool connection. So that's sort of what got me started was that fish market. And then, taking over for when Jim slipped in on the ice. <laughs> How did you get your license? Did you go through the high school program? Nope. I went through the long grueling wait list. So I have been on the wait list for 13 years. I just got my license this last April. So coming up. So I just now, so I'm going on the first year of actually really having my license. So it was April of 2020 that I, that I got that for the first time. And what are you fishing out of? What kind of boat? So 
Uh, we have a, we have two boats. So I, I go fish. I'm still fishing with my stepfather and I like fishing with him. We have a really good working relationship. We've been through sort of all the, the trial and errors of working with somebody so closely for so long. Um, we have a 45 foot Dixon that we go, we do more of uh, all the ground fishing, all the scalloping, shrimping, we go lobstering in it. Um, and then we've got a 35 foot Mitchell Cove. That's kind of like our summer boat and that we do just uh, lobstering, but we can, you know, just, it's like the Mazda, we call it the Mazda Miata because once we go from the winter fishing on the big boat, that's slower and bigger and bulkier, then we downsize to the smaller lobster boat. And it's so it's like zippy and we can get around the traps a lot easier. So um, we fish, we have the two boats. So yesterday we went, um, crappy day it was blowing 30 we found a nice lee we were there until about 12 um the scallops have definitely come hard these last few weeks but we've been grinding just trying to get them and um so it was about 12 o'clock and i'm just like saying you know geez the sandwich from salt meadow farm would take taste really good right now and we're looking at the bucket there's not really much there and, you know, we're just thinking, okay, do we just sell the five gallons and call it a day? Do we stick this out and have the drag slamming on everything? And it just was really kind of a miserable day. It was nice and it's pretty and we enjoy all that, but it was, it was kind of a grind yesterday. So we came in early and I sold those five gallons, like nothing like that is I've got a list going, um, perpetually throughout the year. So I have people contacting me and I don't have product to sell. And it really bums me out in the summertime. I'm so sold out. I sell out every day. Um, you know, as you know, we're only allowed to keep 15 gallons a day um, and four days a week. So that's not much. I can sell that without even really thinking about it because I just have so many people that want them. And what I love about these people that I'm selling to is that they totally appreciate the products they're not going to the grocery store. I've had people say, oh, well, you know, mm, are they wet? Are they dry? You know, or, mm. and I'm just like, this is a product that you do not find in the grocery store. This is premium. This is, I caught this. I shucked this. I made sure that it's clean. It's a nice, perfect scallop. And we call out actually most of the ones that are kind of like falling apart a little bit, if they're cut up a little bit, we call those out and eat them ourselves. And then we only really sell the premium stuff. So I enjoy that. And I, the lobsters is a whole nother ball game because that's, you know, you're getting a lot more product to sell. I can't sell that much product, but I can a little bit. And I definitely am doing all I can to try to move it locally and just among our region. Nothing like a fresh scallop. The only kind of uh, sushi I've ever really liked. Yeah. And I could never go back. You know, I see what they sell in the grocery store and I just, I, I just can't even believe it. Does five gallons cover your overhead for the day? Uh, we make boat, it work. Gas, you know, we, we make it work. <laughs> we go <Yeah>. real slow. <laughs> we don't, we're, we're not, uh, it's not a boat race. We're not, we're not out there, you know, full steam ahead. We're definitely, you know, we, we, don't, we make a profit for sure. Draggers seem to like to drag. You know, I almost feel sometimes, even if they can't catch anything, they'd still go out and drag. 
So I honestly, I think I could sell shells, really cool rocks, bottles. Um, I just actually was delivering to this new restaurant in Southwest Harbor the other day, and they asked me for some shells. I brought them a bucket full of shells, and I threw in a few bottles that we had caught with really cool barnacles on them, you know, really old, cool old bottles, and um, some pieces of pottery, and just a few kind of knickknacky things that we just caught in the drag that you know, I keep a little stash on the boat and whenever someone comes to the boat and picks up scallops right as we're finishing up for the day, I love to give them a handful of shells or something that's like a little token from the boat because it's something that you don't get these things anywhere else. You don't get the fun treasures that come up in the drag. And that's what's so special about it and what I really love about it. And I've been paid for good attitude before because we haven't caught Jack and we've just gone for a boat ride and we've gone... You know, we spent the entire day just like trying and finding nothing and we enjoy it, you know, been doing it for a long time. So what's the weirdest thing you brought up? A toilet, I think <laughs> is kind of weird. Um, lawnmowers, um, really cool bottles from 100 plus years ago. We got some really neat um, marmalade jars this year, just a couple about a month ago in Frenchman's Bay that were really cool. They've got... Um, they say Great Britain on them. They're really cool bottles or jars. Um, we've gotten those. My captain, uh, about 20 years ago, dragged up a body in a flight suit off Boston. So that's always pretty remarkable. They actually oh, found, points, yeah. yeah, they found his through the dental records. They found that he had gone down um, in a in a plane and they buried him in Arlington. The family had never, obviously when he went missing, he was missing, but they found through dental records, his family, his past, and they actually buried those bones in Arlington cemetery. So that's pretty cool. So um, military. But, I'm sorry. So he was military. He was military. I believe I'd have to like fact check on dates, but I believe he had been missing for 65 years. So really impressive that they could actually, because he was in still in his flight suit. So right. they had all of his bones and his teeth. It was his that they found. A walrus skull. Oh, wow. That would be cool. And walrus haven't yep. been on this coast for hundreds of years. Yeah. So where did that come from? It was, you know? He was in Harpswell. Oh, wow. So, and a lot of weird bones. We've definitely gotten some weird bones that I'm like, what on earth does that go to? Do you ever have them tested? No, I've never had them tested, but I still have them all. I've mm -hmm. I mean, I have a shelf in my house and I'm I'm not home right now, but in my in my living room I have a shelf that's got probably five shelves on it loaded with trinkets that I've had over the years. Now my talk. buddy in Hopswell does the same thing. He collects all that stuff and puts them on the shelf. And then they collect dust. And then I'm looking at it this year going, we have to renovate this room. What do we do with all this crap? <laughs> Throw it back what? in the ocean. Yeah, no, bones. Everything has a story. They all have stories. Oh, and don't ever misunderestimate things people will throw in the water because it disappears. Yep. <laughs> Perfect. I know. Perfect and we've right dragged up it. a wallet. We've dragged up clothing, lots of shoes, tons of shoes, you know, random wow. trash, a lot of trash. Alan, we interviewed a fellow from Bass Harbor who, uh, dredged up some uh, Stone Age relics, a hand ads that give me chills when I held it in my hand. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that we've had, some of the rocks I have, I think are, they've got to be something. Because you look at them and you're like, this rock has never seen air. You know, this rock has been on the bottom of the ocean for millions of years. 
And, you know, I'm always looking for a meteor. I would love to find a meteor. <laughs> I've like, that's one thing. Every time there's a pile of rocks, I'm like digging through it. And I'm like, is any of this a meteor or coal? We've gotten a ton of coal. Um, just really, I don't know, random stuff. Now, but coal the rocks has got to come so from cool. a shipwreck. Yeah. And we, so the other thing we dragged up probably four years ago was a nine foot anchor from like the late 17, early 1800s. And it's over in my boss's yard right now. And it is impressive. It's about 19. I mean, it's obviously been at the bottom of the ocean for the last couple hundred years, but that's really cool. That's a really neat artifact. Too cool. Holly, so good talking to you. I, uh... Yeah. Allie's done a really great job of bringing us together. I mean, it's been really, I think it's something that all of us fishermen kind of think like, oh, we have all these stories we want to tell and we want to get it out there. But are we going to go write a book? Probably not now. I mean, maybe someday far down the future. Um, but I think it's really great that Allie has composed all these stories because it's at least started all these conversations that are happening now and bringing all these women together which has been really empowering and it's made us feel like we are part of the fishing community now, which is something that I know like my daughter's almost going to be, she's almost 12. So for her now, you know, it makes my crazy life of being gone before she wakes up in the morning, really part of something. So I appreciate that. So thank you, Allie. <laughs> well, mom, mom, let's talk about sexism for a minute. Um, you're a fisherman, and I use that uh, term with all respect. I believe that's, yep. you know, uh, proper uh, usage there. Um, most of them are fishermen, not fisher, you know, uh, women. Yeah. Uh, the boys respect competence beyond yep. about anything else, don't they? Yep. And You can do the you know, job, you'll get respect. I think, yeah, and I think one of my really good, you know, that why I feel pretty respected amongst the people that I fish around is that they've seen me over the years. I show up, I'm there, you know, I've only quit twice, <laughs> but I've come <laughs> back. And, um, I think that most people are, you know, it's a really hard subject because I think egos get in the way. A lot of the time we're dealing with egos a lot for bait buyers, for lobster buyers. We've got all these people that there's just so much aggression and I know for me, I bring all that down on the boat. I'm not some young guy throwing elbows, trying to, you know, prove myself. I've been doing it long enough where I never was like that. And I'm not like that by nature. I'm not going to sit there and like try to beat up somebody just to get first sight on a job or anything like that. So it's, you know, it's one of those things where I want my daughter to know that she can do anything. And she's seen me now. She, I did this before she was born. So this is just the way of life. Show her a couple piles of cash. And she gets to see the cash. She's seen <laughs> some cash. Now, is yes. she, she going to follow you? She's her own little breed. She she likes to come fishing with us, but small doses. Um, I think two years ago, she liked it more. When she, when she was younger, before she got an opinion about things, she came and there was no problem with it. Now she sort of has an opinion and it's not necessarily the right one <laughs> but that's okay i have no i'm not pushing her that would ruin everything i'm not right. going to push her right definitely holly not. one of my observations is a bunch of the fishermen ladies i know i'd call them kind of fierce i noticed that ally uses the term feisty yep <laughs> it can be feisty it can be feisty without being aggressive 
<laughs> yeah, feisty is a little nicer than fierce. Uh, I'll right, give you a bit right. of that. Yeah. Yep. But again, not uh, again. Uh, you know, kind of comes with the area, the you know, the territory. Yep. Some well, ways. you know, and being I, competent at what you do, which is a learn and earn, experience based job. Yep. You know, the competence comes from knowing that. You know, first off, you're not going to be able to go in. You know, so there's always that feeling of, oh, this day sucks and I want to go in. There is none of that. So, you know, you have to be able to stick it out the whole day. You have to remember that at some point this boat will be tied up to the dock and I need to know what I'm doing. You know, we've had some moments on the boat where we've been in sort of, I call it a panic bail, where we're bailing out the, you know, the bilge. And there's a moment where I'm like, are we going down or is this like something <laughs> happening here? Um, but it didn't. It was fine. Um so you got to be able to handle those situations and not freak out, which, you know, can happen to anybody. But I've stayed pretty calm. I and mean, we've had some moments on the boat that's been pretty scary where, you know, the boat shut off and we're drifting towards shore. And, you know, you got to stay level headed in that and you got to stay competent and knowing that you can kind of take over without even knowing what you need, to, what without being told what you need to do, you need to be able to know what you're supposed to do. So you know, that's, I feel really confident that if something were happening, that I'm at least going to be able to hopefully save myself and make sure that my captain's okay. And that we're, we're kind of know what to do. And we're also, you know, after 17 years of working together, you sort of read each other's minds that you don't even want to, but you <laughs> got to know what the other person's going to do in a situation where you got to be on your toes. And so, you know, we've had some rope situations going over that you got to be quick to the draw and get to the get to the gears. You got to have a knife ready. You know, all those things are over the years seem sort of natural. But in the moment, you got to be really on top of your game. And that's, I think, what gets a little scarier as I get older is that I'm going to be 41 next week. So I'm getting to this point now where my daughter's life is sort of taking over in a different way now. So I'm feeling a little less like I want to go 40 miles offshore. I'd rather be closer <laughs> if something happens. So when we were ground fishing, you know, I couldn't see lands where we were. So I'm not really sure that's in my future much. I think I'm, I think I'm kind of over that. Holly, my favorite uh, place in the world is outside of land. And my favorite thing on a boat is sunrise. Speak on. Absolutely. Totally. The sunrise is my absolutely, that is my spiritual Mecca. Every morning that it rises, you, I just always take those moments to look at them. And just and again, sailing off into the sunrise. There's a fantasy, yep, you know? Yep. Yep. That's a good, it's a good <laughs> feeling. Yep. Who are some of the other fishermen you, you interviewed? Um, Ariel is from Southwest Harbor. Um, Heather Strout. Yeah, Heather. Yep. Did, did you get to go racing with Heather? <laughs> <laughs> I've been at the races and talked to her, but never on her boat. No, I wish. She has a beautiful boat. Little power yeah. in it. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. A little um, bit. <laughs> yeah, a little. <laughs> Um, but Yvonne, uh, she's from Vinyl Haven, Yvonne Rosen. Um, let's see, Julie Eaton. Yeah, well, there's a, now there's a very interesting character. Fierce. Yeah. 
would be yep. the word. And then her husband is even more interesting. And he the said, even more fierce. No <laughs> doubt about it. We've spoken of him before on Boat Talk. Yeah. <laughs> um, Darlene Ames out of Matinicus. Um, Paula Lunt. Um, and she is out of Tenants Harbor. Brittany Dunbar, Korea. You guys might know uh, Brittany. She's she seems to know a lot of your crew. Um, Genevieve, we talked about. I will say too about Genevieve. I just wanted to say something about her is that I don't think I've ever had somebody so closely connected that I can shoot her a message and ask her a question about something, and she responds almost instantaneously. And I realize there's some moments where she's with her kids and stuff where she can't, but she is almost always available for a question, an answer. She'll get back to me with information. So I really appreciate somebody like that in Augusta, even if we don't always agree on what the point of view is. It's really nice to be able to have somebody to kind of help explain through what's going on and have her sort of balanced mindset has been sort of an interesting development over the last couple of years, especially with all these whale rules that are coming out and all these other things that are happening that we're just sort of scratching our head over. So it's been really comforting to have her around. I've appreciated her. <laughs> Lindsay McDaniels, and she's yep. Northeast Harbor. Holly knew Lindsay, right? Yep. Oh, I've known Lindsay for a long time. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, Sarah Leiter. Um, oh, Holly, you're in there. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, most of them are down east. I don't have many people from south, but um, and mid coast as well. How, how Holly, many... let's talk. Let's also uh, talk about you for a minute. Pretty rugged is not your first pretty book. <laughs> it's not. No. Um, I also have Pretty Combat, which was two years ago, and it's more of a lifestyle book. Um, you know, business, family, mindset, everything lifestyle. I've read you that. also, I believe, have self-published these books. Yes, I did. Yep. So self-publishing, um, again, your Pretty Combat book did quite well, didn't it? Uh, it did, um, knock on wood. Yeah, it, it did. It, it, it took off quite well. Um, and I'm hoping this will too. We're just right at the beginning of this one still with COVID. I haven't been able to really do anything with, um, you know, uh, everything shut down as far as tours and everything. So good time this evening. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you guys Thank for having guys. me. Yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> We have time to fit in another lady. She describes paying good money to race around the world the wrong way. Uh, that's the, uh, was the BT Global Challenge. I believe this time round it's going to be called the Global Challenge. The first one was the Bushy Steel Challenge, and it's a race run by Che Blythe in uh, steel boats and it, you say you're going around the wrong way in fact you're going to windward as opposed with the wind coming behind you um, the boats we had were designed by David Thomas they were 65 foot and there were 14 people on each boat we were all trained for about two years beforehand very strictly on Royal Marine standards and I've never had to run five, four miles or swim at sea in February but 
in order to do it. It was part of our training, and I got through it. Well, it sounds uh, really organized, I guess, to put it mildly. Now, this, these are all the same boats, so it's a sort of a one-design race where the, the boats are more or less equal. It's just a, a team-against-team race. Is that, is that correct? That's absolutely correct. It's uh, up to the crew and their technique to get the ro boat round the fastest and safest. Um, the boats now are slightly larger, so Che can make more money by putting more crew on board. Mm. <laughs> uh, but they're again uh, steel boats. They're divide, um, designed by Rob Humphreys, and I have to say, all his boats and David Thomas's boats were great, and they sail well. They have to put up with a lot of hard weather. They have to put up with a lot of idiot crew doing silly things, and they seem to come through really well. I can't imagine anybody training two years to go through what you must go through. Let's let's describe where the race actually happens and down in the, the roaring 40, 40s. Is that right? Um, the race actually starts. Uh, the race I did started in England, and it went from England to Rio, Rio around Cape Horn, and on to New Zealand, Wellington, and then from Wellington to Australia, Sydney, and Sydney round south round Tasmania to Cape Town, leaving the Kogulan Highlands uh, to port. And then the next leg was Cape Town up to Boston and then Boston back to Southampton in England. I missed the first two legs because I broke my leg, but um, I joined... Yeah, I chased cows out of the garden at home just before the race oh. and slipped and broke my ankle. Mm. So uh, I missed the first two legs, but uh, I've uh, completed around the world by doing another race later. The waves down the Southern Ocean, they are quite large and they're quite scary. When the wind blows really hard, of course, the sea flattens out. But the thing that always stands out in my mind is not the size of the waves, but the little petrels that you see s flying in these huge seas with this tremendous wind and still managing to fly under the waves, as do the um, albatross, which are incredible. Those stick in my mind far more than the big waves, which I want to forget, and the southern lights, which were incredible. Well, there you have it. Another boat talk has sailed right by. Thanks to Kathy Newman of Newman Marine Brokerage, Ollie Farrell, author of Pretty Rugged, and Holly Masterson of Southwest Harbor Fisherman. Radio Ecoshock is next. Stand by. I survive the sail, sir. I survive the pits of fish and take some home to lie, sir.